Alright, so it is week four of Advent. Week one, we talked about waiting. Week two, we talked about mystery. Week three, we talked about the incarnation. This Sunday, we're going to talk about the manger. Now, if you guys notice, there's only one candle not lit yet. Of course, that's the white one. That's the, the Jesus candle, right? We will be lighting that one on Christmas Eve at 11.30. I hope you guys come and make it, okay? You can drag the kids in their pajamas. The whole idea is to do something that's not ordinary. Uh, it's hard enough for us to get excited about God and to kind of break out of routine. And so doing something that's not routine, doing something that's different, that makes you think and say, why are we going anywhere at midnight? This is ridiculous, okay? It helps us remember this is special. This is special. And so I encourage you guys, if you get a chance, please join us Christmas Eve at 1130. It's going to be a really powerful time. And we actually get to light that last candle, <laughs> okay? And, and, and I think everyone gets a candle on Christmas Eve, too. But there shouldn't be nearly as many of us. Many of us. It should be a sparser crowd, you think? Midnight? Man, you guys are lively already. All right. So how do we do this? Okay, we've been building up for three weeks. And uh, this entire weekend, I've been thinking, you know, how in the world am I supposed to top this building? I mean, you know, how in words do we even start to talk about what it means to expect the Savior, the King, the Lord, the Comforter, the Almighty. I mean, you know, he's all these different things, but what makes it so difficult, one, is that he is those things, but two, is that he comes in this form that seems so familiar to us. He comes in the form of an infant, of a baby. We talked last week about the incarnation, about how it's the weirdest thing in the world. Why in the world would God choose to come in this form? We talked about, you know, if, if in service all of a sudden this, you know, 16 foot, you know, monster human showed up with fire in his eyes and, you know, a lightning bolt, everyone would jump to the floor and be like, we're sorry, we repent, you're God, right? I mean, it would just be like, this is God, he's real. But if I were to bring a baby up here, you'd be like, it's a baby, that's not God. But the one thing that we do find in the manger, the one thing that we find in this form that he chose to take is that it is completely approachable. There's nothing about a baby that is terrifying. There's nothing that, that strikes fear to us. I mean, you know, unless you are scared of babies, which I'm not sure I've ever heard that before. Is anyone here scared of babies? Steve, Steve, come on now. It is the ultimate picture of someone who was bigger making himself small so that we would approach him. We talked about, you know, whenever you meet a two-year-old, if you're good with children, you understand to come down to their level. Make yourself small, not intimidating, familiar. And this is exactly what we see in the manger. We see a God who so desires us to approach him that he even takes a form to where there's no obstacles or hurdles for us to reach him. But before we talk too much more about that, you know, Advent, we've been teaching Advent, I think, for four years now. The one thing that struck me this morning about the way that we've been teaching Advent, I feel like the only really thing that has been wrong with the way we've taught it has been we've taught it with the wrong backdrop. You guys know what a backdrop is? That's a backdrop. Make sense? 
if you go to a play or something, right? You know, if it's a scene in a library, there's going to be books in the background, okay, in the backdrop. It's to bring you into the scenery, to make you feel like you're there. And I feel like the only thing we haven't taught accurately is the backdrop. And I feel like as we've taught Advent, we've talked about it being a gift. You know, we've kind of used the Christmas analogy. It's almost like the backdrop we've painted for Christmas is a Christmas tree and a warm fire and this beautiful present. Which is that, right? What we didn't paint is what it is to the Jews. For them, waiting for the Messiah, it was a longing not rooted in excitement to open a present. It was a longing rooted in wanting freedom from pain. Last, uh, well, I can't remember what night it was. I think it was like Tuesday night. My wife had a really severe migraine. She has them all the time, but this one was special. We were up to about 5.30 in the morning. We were trying everything that we knew. And normally, you know, she's pretty tough at these things. You know, she just kind of ignores it. But this one was just excruciating. It hurt watching her. I was like, I mean, what can we do to help? I mean, we tried everything. And it felt like every second went by so slowly because you're just in that pain. Have you guys ever experienced anything, whether it's emotional, physical, have you ever experienced a pain or a weight that seemed to slow time down? Yes. There is a longing that's rooted in pain that's very different from excitement for a gift or a present or an experience. There's a longing that comes from a place of wanting to be relieved, to be released, to be freed. Well, as we're praying for Advent this year, I... Uh, used the writings of Bonhoeffer, and he wrote about Advent while he was in prison. Um, when the Nazis took power in Germany, he, he stood up to try to protest them. And of course, he was thrown in prison, and so he was writing to his fiance, which he never married because he died in prison. And he, he was writing her, and it's, it's, it's a shocking, sobering thing to think about Advent from someone who is, who is experiencing what it means to long to be freed. He's physically in a jail cell. It's cold. He's lonely. There's no one there. The people he loves, the things he desires are outside of this cell. He cannot reach them. He cannot touch them. He cannot you know, speak to them or see them. He is detained. He is locked. He is trapped. And so the way that he spoke about Advent, the way that he longed to see Jesus return to free him, it gripped me. The one thing that we don't understand about Advent, the one thing we don't understand about the way we are to be looking for Jesus' return is that there are many people in this world who are not nearly as comfortable as we are. And the even deeper truth is that there is no one in this room who is truly comfortable. We all have some form of pain or fear or something trapping or weighing us down, but we just have more things in our lives to distract us from it. Every one of us, if we would be honest, wants to be freed from something. Whether it's a physical pain or relational situation, whether it's loneliness or isolation or you know, fear or whatever that thing or it or person even is, there is something that we need to be released from. 
And as we, you know, we have these cute candles and we, we have these trees and presents, but the root of Christmas, the root of, of us as the people who are waiting, the waiting people, the people who are waiting for their king, their everything to return, is rooted in understanding that it is only in him that we find freedom. Because he brings many things. He brings peace and joy and life and all these things. But the biggest thing that we have in Jesus, his very name means the one who saves, the one who rescues, the one who pulls us out from where we are and takes us to a better place. This is the heart of what we're talking about this morning. And yes, he is a present. Yes, he's many things, you know. Yes, it's beautiful to unwrap everything that Jesus is. But the root of it is that we need him. And this morning, I I just really encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to remind you that you need him. Amen? Well, that was an exciting way to start Christmas morning, right? Amen. (laughs) Yeah. We have a terrific present to unwrap this morning, let me tell you. All right. Put your imagination caps on. This is not my typical sermon, okay? So you better enjoy it, all right? It's not the way I like doing things, okay? But let's put our imagination caps on. Okay, here we go. Now, it, we see in the manger story, we see these, these, these shepherds, these wise men. We see kings. We see all different people from all different levels of society and privilege doing one thing. They are seeking this baby king, this king of the Jews. Where can we find this baby. And each person has a different reason to find him. But they're all seeking him. Where is he? And this morning, with your imagination caps on, imagine, okay, Jesus has been born, of course, you know. He's in the barn. He's in the manger. He's in this trough. We're, we're going to walk up, okay? And again, come on, help me. Stay with me. We're walking up, okay? I hate doing this, so enjoy it. All right, it's the closest thing to dancing and singing you'll ever see me do. All right, so we're here with the manger, okay? There's poop, and he's just been born. Imagine that. There's animals, there's hay, there's all sorts of, it's not a pretty picture, okay? It's not, you know, anyways. We're here, we're looking, and the first question is this. What do we see? As we approach the manger, what do we see? What is this baby? Now, one of my favorite uh, phrases in the story is, is, and he shall be called. And he shall be called. Meaning, his name will be. Now understand, you know, throughout most of history and almost all cultures, names are, are so important to identity. You are named for what you are. Your name tells people how to relate to you. Okay, does that make sense? Some of you in this room, I might still have a British name like uh, Walker. <laughs> yeah, let's not even go there. Okay, anyways, yeah, sleeper. Okay, you know, the, the, they are I-N-G things. They are verbs, right? You know, they are to describe an occupation or, you know, something noteworthy, something that you are known for. Okay, and again, it's a name tells us how to relate. How am I supposed to understand this person? And in life, well, in culture, we'll say this. In culture, words are how we understand things. That's slightly deep, but do you understand that? (laughs) 
Do you understand the words I'm trying to tell you to understand? Okay. Words are how we understand things. Okay. I can, you know, go my entire life experiencing things, finding things, knowing things. But if I don't have a word, we can't share that understanding. Does that make sense? So if I don't have a word, then I'll have to physically take you there so that you experience it. But words help you go places and share things with people without having to physically experience what that person experienced. Make sense? Okay. We're building here. Stay with me. Okay. So, words attach pictures and experiences. Meaning, if I say pool, you all get a picture and you relate it to an experience, right? You guys all think about either getting into a beautiful pool or you guys have this really awful pool experience, whatever. You have an image and an expectation. Does that make sense? If I say cake, image, and then you expectation. Making sense. Okay. So whenever I say, he shall be called, it's, what it's saying is, these words about Jesus, you're going to have an image and an expectation. So the names of Jesus are to create for us a tasting of what Jesus is like. Does that make sense? You can't physically be at the manger, obviously, right? But these words let us get a glimpse and a taste and a little bit of an experience of what he is like. Make sense? All right. So we have two passages today that we will go to. The first one, Isaiah 9, verse 1. If you guys have your Bibles, Isaiah 9, verse 1. We're going to find out some, some pictures and experiences that we are supposed to associate with who is in this manger and what it means to us. Isaiah 9, verse 1. As I read, I'll, I'll pause and, you know, kind of throw in some interesting stuff. Hopefully it's interesting. Just stay with me. Uh, let's go ahead and stop and uh, start in verse 2. Here's what it says. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now we opened this up a little bit last week with the incarnation. You need to understand this about Jesus, okay? He came in the form he came and He was born into this, this nasty muck, this smell, the stench of a barn. He was born into a poor family. He was... He was Basically, he came in such a way to communicate to you that there is no darkness where he will not be with you. To those, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep deep darkness, a light has dawned. The first thing that we need to understand about Jesus is where he went first. The first place he goes is into the heart of darkness. And I believe that this applies even to you as an individual. The first place that he is to be found is in the place of your deepest, darkest wounds, fears, and hurts. That is where he is waiting to meet you. What's powerful about this is almost all of us have this deep desire to be known, if you would, you know. It's almost like uh, human beings are, are not meant to be lonely. We're not meant to be isolated. We're not, you know, meant to live life in solitude. And there's something about us that deeply wants people to be with us and to know us and to relate to us and to, you know, to even accept us as who we are. 
But what's tricky about that is that what we want is not just someone to be physically near to us. What we want is for someone to know us. And the problem with someone knowing us is there's darkness in us. The healthiest marriages in this room are the ones where your spouse knows your darkness and is willing to be with you there. Verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Let me translate that. Because light is entered darkness, because God is now willing to be with you in your darkest and accept you, now they're throwing a party. Okay, okay, translation for that. You guys are like harvest festivals and warrior's boots. You're like, you're lost. They're partying. It's a good thing, okay? <laughs> the fact that this God is willing to meet me in darkness and embrace me there is a good thing worth partying over. Okay, there we go. Modern day translation. Okay, verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destroyed for burning, will be fuel for the fire. I don't even want to open that one up this morning. That caused some issues. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Let's stop right there. Here's the first word, the first picture that we are supposed to associate with who Jesus is. Because you can't physically sit with him, here are some pictures and experiences, some expectations for you to kind of, you know, nibble on, to, to get your appetite to meet Jesus. Here's the first one. He is wonderful counselor. He's a good counselor. Here's what this means. If, if you are someone who has questions that need answers, if you're someone who has been seeking for meaning in life, if you're someone who just wants to know what truth is, what's up, what's down, what's real, what's not real, if you're someone who is just utterly lost, here's your guy. Counselor. And when you begin to follow the term used here throughout the scriptures, it, it's not just someone who sits down to kind of hear your problems. It's someone who takes you by the hand. All right, come on here. Here we go. Wonderful counselor. The one who finds us in darkness and walks us out of darkness. Let's continue. The next picture of who God is. He's a wonderful counselor and he is mighty God. What's hard for us is that, how you put this? If you had never heard of who God was, if you've never been to a church service, if you've never read a Bible before, when you would see these words, a very natural picture and expectation would, would, would show up inside of you. What's wrong is, because we've been to church, because we've heard so many sermons, we have new kind of like, how would you put that, uh, replacement pictures, if, you know, for what these words mean. You know, whenever you hear mighty God, it, it becomes this kind of a thing, you know, it becomes a, a stained glass picture becomes this, you know, whatever it is. But simply put, he has power. Think about this. Now, who needs to meet with someone? Who needs someone to meet them in darkness who has power? 
someone who's chained, someone who's in prison, someone who needs to be freed, someone who is tormented, someone who's under attack. When you are in any of these places, you want someone who has power to take away, to change your circumstances. And so he's the one who meets us in darkness. He's the one who's willing to grab our hand to walk us out. And he's also the one who's able to break open the door. Are you seeing this? It could be a physical thing. It could be emotional or mental, relational. It doesn't matter. This person who is waiting for you in your darkness has power to take you out of darkness. He's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He is everlasting Father. I think this one's very interesting. The... the, um, Hebrew words here basically means everlasting, meaning a father who will never stop being your father. That's a very different understanding than what you had of that word, right? When you hear it, again, it just goes like a church word, and you instantly just, I'm in a pew, and you know. A father who will never cease to be your father. A father who will never, ever leave. Think about that. Already, there are many of you in this room who that should connect to some kind of note in your life and in your heart. A father who will never cease or leave or give up or move on or find another. He will always be your father. So the one who finds us in darkness, the one who holds our hand to lead us out, who has power to free us, and now the one who's going to comfort and to care, to reassure us, to hug us, if you would, all the way out. Think about this picture. This, this is how we are to picture and expect. If I say tuna sandwich, a few people go, yes! You know, but that's exactly what the Messiah has become for many of you. And myself. It's such, it's so much more than that. Everlasting Father. The Father who will always be there for us. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Now we have a new one. Prince of Peace. Now, I want you to understand something about this word. The word peace there is not the the word most of us know. It's the Hebrew word shalom. And more than a lack of violence or a lack of chaos, shalom means wholeness. To make things whole. It means things that weren't right in shalom are made right. Things that were broken are repaired. Things that were injured are healed. Things that were lost are restored. The odds are is the reason you are in darkness is because something was lost. Something was hurt. Something was broken. Something bad happened to you, and that's why you are in darkness in some way, shape, or form. And the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom, the one who has authority, the authority to make things right again. And so, whatever led your life to where you are now, This is the one who has the authority and the power and the desire to make those things right for you. 
the prince of shalom, the prince, the authority to make things whole and right again. What things do you need to be made right in your life? What things have you lost that you need God to restore? What person have you lost that you wish could be found? The passage ends here in verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace, again, his wholeness, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, if you notice at the end there, it, it talks about the throne of David. It talks about his reign. This is alluding to the final title that we see of Jesus in the book of Revelation. And that final title, the way that he will be known for all eternity, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His reign will never end, meaning once he takes the throne, once he becomes king, he will never not be king. Now, the reason that this is important for us right now is we just talked about all the things that this person is going to do for us in, in, in the world. He's the one who's going to counsel us. He's the one who's going to meet us in darkness. He's the one who's going to free us. He's the one who's going to comfort us, to affirm us, to father us forever. He's the one who's going to make things right. He's going to restore all things that are broken. And in this, this person will rule, have complete authority to keep things right forever. He won't get voted out in four years. Oh, that was a good one. Sorry. Sorry, I was cheesy. I'm, okay. He is not only able to make things right, to do these things, but he will be in power to keep them right forever. This is the reign that he has. Now, there's a few more that I want to use to close this on. If you guys have your Bibles, let's go to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. The first chapter, we'll start in uh, verse 18. So Matthew 1:18. So it says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now stop right there. Understand, it's highlighting the fact that they hadn't come together because this is a problem for Joseph. Okay? In his culture, <laughs> it is a very bad thing to, you know, to impregnate someone before marriage. That's bad all, all by itself. But now... He knows and she knows that they haven't been together. Guys, come on now, guys. If you're engaged, and the person you are engaged to becomes pregnant, you have not been with that person yet. Are you going to be okay with it? I was about to say, you better speak up right now. Okay. <laughs> this is a problem. Um. Culturally, but personally, this is, this is difficult to deal with. And so we see that even, you know, an angel has to come and tell him, hey, chill out, trust God, this is okay. Now, the one thing that you need to understand is that we don't see much of Joseph in the Scriptures. We don't see much of a relationship. We don't see much connection. We see the brothers of Jesus. We see the mother of Jesus throughout the Gospels. We don't see Joseph. Yeah. This is not in there, 
but I believe it's safe for us to just assume that this is something that he deals with for a very long time. Think about this. Every other child, every other sibling of Jesus, all of his other brothers, they were all fathered by Joseph. They're his. You know, and we'd all love to assume that Joseph was just so supernaturally awesome that he didn't care. And that the one that's not his is the special one. The one that he didn't father is the one who's going to change the world. The one who's going to be, oh yeah, by the way, the king of eternity and who happens to be God. Can you imagine that? Jesus took my toy. Let him have it. You know, I mean, you know it's like, goodness gracious. Yeah. Jesus was multiplying toys. He was, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Anyways. So understand, this is a problem. This is something that is a very big issue, okay? Uh, Verse 19. Uh, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Again, he's not planning to stay with this woman. He's, you know, I mean, it doesn't even seem as if he believes her, okay? Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The next picture and expectation we are to have of Jesus, of this baby in the manger as we approach him, is this name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Meaning, he will save. And the word save there is more of rescue. It's it's a picture more, again, of of, of someone drowning and a hand coming down to pull them out. Okay, Of, of someone in a burning house and someone rushing in to carry that person out of the burning house. It's not just a legal term of, okay, their sins are forgiven. It's, it's of a person and of a God who's going to rush into your darkness and carry you out. The picture and expectation you are to have of who Jesus is is someone who's going to rush in to where you need him to rush in and to carry you out. This is the expectation we are to have for Jesus. Let's continue. Verse 22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This takes us to the the last name we're going to talk about this morning, Emmanuel. I think of all of the different names of Jesus, this one excites me the most, but it also kind of scares me a little bit. We talked about the deepest kind of, you know, desire that most all of us have is that someone would fully see who we are and embrace us and love us anyway. But what's scary about that is that anyone who's made this risk to let someone come close understands how dangerous risky and scary this is. There's something about truly letting someone 
come close that is terrifying. And the idea that God is going to come close is even scarier. It's a beautiful thing, you know, to imagine a God. I'll say this way. Think about your moment in your life. What is the lowest moment you've ever experienced? Say a sin even. What, what mistake, what, what thing have you done in your life that you are the most ashamed of? Picture yourself in the act of that thing. And then imagine God walking into the room. I would run. I don't know about you. I would, I would hide. I would run. I would squeal or yell. I don't know what I would do. I mean, come on. Be honest. If you wouldn't be like, Lord Jesus, my Savior. You would try to cover up whatever it was that was happening. You would try to hide yourself. Sound familiar? The Garden of Eden. You would try to hide yourself. And this is the, this is the thing that you have learned to do in every relationship. We still hide ourselves from each other constantly because we are convinced that we cannot allow anyone to be in the darkness with us. There's no way someone could truly see the deepest, darkest part of us, the lowest moment, and still embrace us. Maybe if we could just pretty it up a little bit, just kind of share them a little bit of it, maybe half the story. But we have this, this God who insists on meeting us in the moment of absolute darkness. The name Emmanuel. God with us. And again, it's this, it's this notion, we've heard it so many times, it just becomes nothing. It's, oh yeah, God with us. I mean, who... What person alive, okay? I mean, you, you know, it could be president, you know, it could be whatever, you know, someone from history. If there was a person who you just think is just amazing and they literally came to your house, you would just be floored. It would just, it, it, you know, you would, you would cancel everything. Your entire life would revolve around this moment that Lady Gaga, and I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm messing with everyone. I just, I wanted, I wanted to mess with you. I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. Everyone's like, we're leaving. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's a joke. Stay where you are, I promise. Uh, whoever it is, I just wanted to wake you up. <laughs> if you guys only knew all the things I don't say. But I thought, anyway, okay. The quieter you get, the more tempted I get. Anyways, okay. So that person, okay, whoever it is, you know, John Wayne. There we go. That's, that's acceptable. John Wayne. Okay, right. Okay. If that person were to come into your house, okay, that moment would just be, wow, okay? But again, this idea of God coming with us. If we truly believe what it said, it would just floor us. It would change everything. We would never be the same. But of course, you know, we're all human and we don't believe it, okay? If we really believed what this means, that there's a God who is not only willing to be near us, but who is near us would transform everything and that's exactly what this this is about this is what the entire story is about this is why we do the candles this is why we have a faith this is why we're Christians because we believe there's a God who is near us not just near us on our best day he's not just near us on Sundays when we take a shower and we get all dressed up and we smile he's near us 
in the worst moment of our lives. That's when He wants. That's when He insists on being near us. In your relationships, the people that you know love you the most are the ones who insist on being there with you when you don't want them to be. That's exactly what we see with this God. He insists on being with us in the one moment we don't want anyone to see or to know. That's when he says, I'm here. That's what the Christmas story is all about. And obviously it's not just a story for us. This this is our hope. This is what we wait for because we celebrate the fact that he came, the fact that he opened up this door to, to be near and to allow him to be near to us. But the part most of us forget is that we are still waiting for the counselor, for the mighty God, for the Prince of Peace to come back and to fix everything because things are not fixed yet. Things are not right yet. Things are not whole. Things are not restored. I'm not healed. I'm, not, I'm still broken now. And we wait because when He returns, we need Him to come. We need Him to come and to do what only He can do. And what we must do is remind ourselves that, that this entire thing is not just some cute annual time to give each other presents you know and to be happy I'm so glad we get to do that but it is about reminding ourselves that this world and we need fixing it's not just because we're so broken it's because there's so much more to be had there's so much more for us to live for. There is a whole another life that will begin when he returns and it is so much more fuller. There's so much more to experience and to know and to enjoy and to love. There's, there's a, such a place where everything in person that's been lost will be restored to us. Where everything that's wrong, everything that, that hurts us, that pulls us down, that weighs us down will be removed. And this is what we hope for. This is what this season's all about. Would you guys stand with me this morning? We're going to get you guys out on time this morning. It's Christmas. That's my present to you. Before I really start to wrap this up, I really do encourage you guys to come back Christmas Eve. It's going to be a really powerful time. I'm holding things back this morning because, again, I, you know, we're going to save the celebration, if you would, the last candle for Christmas Eve. But there are two questions I have for you this morning I want to end with. The first one's very simple. You know, in the story of the manger, we see kings and wise men, shepherds, all seeking this baby. And the first question to you this morning is, will you come to the manger? Are you interested to draw near to him? And the sound, I mean, you're all like, oh, we're, you know, we're all at church. You know? It's not a physical thing. 
You know, whenever we teach what it means to be saved, you know, we, we talk about Romans 10. It means to confess He's Lord, and we turn it into just words. But to confess is intent, meaning I, in the deepest part of me, intent, I plan to do this thing. And so the question this morning is, in the deepest part of you, do you intend to closer to Jesus? Is that really your intent? Is that really your plan? Or is that not your plan at all? I love honest people. And I, I lo- that's why I love this church. Be honest with yourself. What do I really plan to do? Do I really plan to, when I walk out these doors, draw closer, take steps closer to who this person is? Is that really what I want? So that's the first question. Do you really intend, do you really plan to draw closer to the manger? And the second question is this. What will you bring when you get there? Put your imagination caps on. Okay. Here you are with the manger. What are you going to do? You get there. Oh, it's a baby. You know, what are you going to do? Understand that, you know, the king at that time was intending to come to the manger. His intent was murder. The wise men, their intent was to kneel, was to bow, to receive that child as exactly who he was, even though there was nothing on the outside that made him look like who he was. And that's a challenge for most of us. The challenge for most of us is that we have a God who is so loving, so gentle, that he's willing to even give us distance. What a dangerous thing to play with for us. That we have a God who won't make us. He won't show up here with, with you know, the fire and the lightning bolts and fun. We have this God who takes the most vulnerable, non-threatening, approachable form and says, do you want to come near to me? Because I want to come near to you. If you guys would close your eyes and we're all here.